Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the show. Stoked you're here today. Just have the most amazing episode for you with Alexander Bard. Alexander Bard is a philosopher through and through and has lived many lives, starting with the life of a rock star in the 80s and 90s. He's a Scandinavian uh, pop, electro pop, rock artist. And today, before the episode starts, I'm going to play for you the biggest hit that they ever had, which is called Crucified. And I'm also going to link in the description below the original music video for this. This is a, a track out of 1991. I was three years old. This song is 30 years old. And it is the the video, the song and the video is so it's it's strangely like addicting and it's also the video itself is so bizarre and strange and it's after talking to alexander it's like it tracks it tracks for me it like it makes sense he's very he's like he's very free to to think his thoughts and and to speak his mind. And that's really where we start today. We talk about free speech. We talk about cancel culture. Um, and then we get into a bunch of other really interesting things. He's such an interesting person. And I so, so, so appreciate him coming on to the show. And like I, you'll hear me tell him that like my conversation with him is massively encouraging for me. And it just like, it, I feel like I'm just a little bit more liberated to to think my thoughts and to speak my mind, and it's just wonderful. I hope it's encouraging for you. So if you like this show, consider supporting me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash air. And I'm also doing philosophical coaching. You can find that on my website, airyintheair.com. And without further ado, here's a song out of 1991 by a band called Army of Lovers with Alexander Bard crucified and then my talk with Alexander you guys enjoy Hey, 
Alexander Bard, thanks so much for being here. So stoked to talk to you. It's so nice being here with you. <laughs> yeah, I um, I I almost had you on actually, probably two years ago, eighteen months ago, but I was, but I was afraid of the lynch mob, the cancel culture mob that was after you, <laughs> with their <laughs> with their keyboard pitchforks. And so that's actually kind of oh, where God. I want to start. That's kind of where I want to start today. Um, you've been pretty outspoken recently talking about free speech. And I think that's a really um, salient, but also kind of misunderstood subject in our culture right now. So I would love if you could problematize it for us. Like what is, I think that the vast majority of people don't actually understand what's at stake and and kind of what what the essence of the issue really is. So maybe you could problematize it for us to begin. I think the basic problem, and this is why a lot of bright kids these days are, are going to Hegel and studying Hegel. Like it's a huge thing online these days. And Hegel is difficult, but absolutely necessary to understand the times we live in. Now, what Hegel teaches us that everything around us, including our own thinking and our own behavior, is dialectical. So, say for example that you really believe in diversity. You you believe in diversity so heavily that it's not enough that there's a diversity of opinion, and there's not enough that there's a diversity of uh, of talents. You want a diversity of looks, as if a diversity of looks can guarantee that we have a diversity of opinion, diversity of talents. Now, the problem is that. That sounds good, right? You're a diversist, whatever you want to call it. And, and you get really aggressive about it and you fight it really hard. and You fight against all these monolithic guys who only want to see people of their same skin color, their same gender, their same age, anywhere they are. So they're comfortable with that. So you have an enemy, the clear enemy you want to fight, right? The problem is that dialectically speaking, you're very soon going to turn your conviction, your ideology about the brilliance of diversity into its own monolith. Like if diversity is not practiced the way you fantasize about it, then you will not allow any exception from your fantasy. So you, the guy who becomes totalitarian. So you only become exactly what you were fighting. And usually in today's society, that happens when you, when you lose the ground where you started from. So say you started from diversity is a good idea. Yeah, diversity is a good idea. When you, for example, brainstorm and try to figure out what's going on in the world or when you want people who learned to have a learned discussion about things because you want different opinions at that stage. So you open up the floor, for example, and people talk about things. You want a diversity because you want a diversity of talents, different archetypes in the room, different personality types in the room, different backgrounds, and you want them to speak their mind to get the broadest possible sense of what's going on to then be able to answer the problem and find a solution, right? So that makes sense. Now, the problem is if you, if you lose that sense of diversity, there's a good to the diversity and you start moving to the diversity of people and you want to move quickly, then suddenly it becomes compensating. So then the rally cries no longer that we need diversity for our own good. We need diversity because we have people who were treated badly in the past. They weren't seen. They weren't heard. Uh, they didn't get attention. You know, they were the kids at school who were ignored, whereas other kids got all the attention. So we want to compensate for that because these kids were like, they feel, they feel betrayed, they feel they were pissed, off, pissed on in the past. So now we're going to put them at the forefront instead and change the whole thing. So we and suddenly your whole movement becomes obsessed with diversity of looks. Now, the moment it becomes an obsession with diversity of looks, you've lost the ground. It's not about 
diversity which has a purpose any longer. It's just compensation. It's revenge. It's envy. It's resentment. And that's historically when things go really, really bad. So this happened, for example, during the French Revolution. There were the Jacobins. The Jacobins were their own little sect of good people who did good things. And they were pacifist. They were vegetarian. They were nice guys. You know, they were little pillar saints, reading texts to each other, being peaceful. And if only they could rule the world, then everything would be eternal peace forever. Right? These were the Jacobins at the beginning of the French Revolution. And it turned out three or four years into the French Revolution that the absolutely bloodiest, most merciless of all the revolutionaries had become the Jacobins. But they were so obsessed in getting this sort of Platonist beautiful heaven that they were going to create on earth. And that was so necessary that anybody who made the slightest bit of an exception to their fantasy had to be killed. And this is Hegel. He, what Hegel warns us against all the time is to not stay with the contradiction where reality actually operates and question ourselves at all times, but rather go sort of militant and know, I am right, I'm absolutely right about this, and I'm going to kill the enemy, so I'm going to force the enemy to be diverse, <laughs> which is the irony here, because if you kill the enemy, you have nobody to be diverse with. You just got lost to the other guy who was your diversity to begin with. So the problem is that this has become so common today, and I think the general problem that a lot of kids today have access to, to social media, they can express themselves instantly, they, they, they learn how to talk and give speeches to others when they're eight years old, but they don't learn anything. The average 20-year-old today has read maybe a fifth of the number of books that I read when I was 20 years old. So they have no ground. And they jump from one word to the next, from one hashtag to the next, and they have no ground underneath. And this is a really dangerous state to be in. And exactly this is what they do. What they do is that they express themselves and they speak freely, yes, but they instantly want to cancel the guy, you know, who speaks against them. They're not ready to stay with the contradiction, to stay with the debate, to, to allow for an open society to prosper because we have a diversity of opinions. No, no, no. The other opinion must go because the diversity of looks and sounds has become the obsession. And this is infantile. This is incredibly infantile. Like, I'm obsessed with how things look and I'm obsessed with how things sound. But I can't really well, handle the, the, the genuine diversity beneath that, right? Well, to go back to, to what you first said was that the dialectic which is like the two poles communicating back and forth it's the pendulum that's swinging back and forth between even in our own heads no not that really is, that, that, no, is, that no that's debate the difference here is that dialectic is always at least three it's a tricky word dialectic means that things are moving from one point in history towards another point over there but the way it moves is that we, we, don't, we don't doubt anything as long as there isn't a problem with it. But as soon as there's a problem with something, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the problem is. And then we try to fix it. And we can't fix it any longer. We drop it. That's exactly how phenomenology works. It's called a negation. So what happens is that we assume something. Then there's a problem with that. And the way to then look at the problem is to go back to what we had before. And then look at that. Because that's the only option we have. And then start imagining what could the third be like. And that's when you find the solution. So it's, it's not just a okay. debate between two poles. It's not a yin and yang. Dialectics, really, it wants to move ahead. It wants to get somewhere. It's, it's not a state of indecision. It's, it's not afraid of having a solution to something. It's just that the solution is always temporary. And once you make the solution, you stay with it. 
for as long as it's valid, but then you try the whole thing again, and you have a new problem, you find a new solution. And this is a dialectical process. So, so always think of dialectics, always try to think of like a triad. There's always three parts involved. Th then you get dialectic. Because otherwise you're just talking about parts. a general debate. Yeah. And, and you're calling the three parts the, the thing, the problem, and the solution? Well, the, the, there, is, there, is, there, there is a thing that works and has worked for a long time and no longer works for you, and therefore it starts to crack. Okay? When it starts to crack, that's called a negation. Something dies in the model. And that has to be replaced with something that's alive, and that's called fixing something. It works like anything else. Like construction metaphors are great here. So you basically construct, you fix it. But you know that once you started fixing something, there will probably be more cracks eventually, so you need to watch out for those. And suddenly you have two more cracks. And then you realize the cracks are becoming so many now when you see them that it's meaningless to keep this. And then you thought, so what do I do now with this thing I've got ahead of me? But what did I have in the past? You learn from history. You go back to history and learn. For example, before you have a strong opinion on diversity of looks, maybe you should study the history of the Jacobins and not become one. Otherwise, you just make the same mistakes all over again. And that's memory. That's yeah, collective and then, memory and history. Yeah. And then you take that, and that's the only thing you can't. And then you start imagining, but it's not, it's not that I'm going to go back to anything. It's more like I can learn from it, but I have to pursue something that's never happened, something novel and new. And that's when dialectics forces itself into the next thing. And this is why a debate today, for example, in America, that gets stuck in two camps that are really very wrong, both of them, is a very totally. dead and very dangerous debate. And then you get the guys canceling each other, not even talking to each other, which is guaranteed to kill the dialectical process entirely. And yes. all my talk about free speech is essentially the same old one. Like, I want to I allow my enemies to speak first, just to, just to show that I'm serious about it, because otherwise I become a stupid idiot and a hypocrite. Yeah. So what I was tr trying to tie together there is that you said that the to cancel each other to to speak past each other is infantile and the way that even our thinking works in our own head is dialectical that it is in some kind of dialogue that it is in some kind of tension with what is working what is not working and what might come of that exactly so so, I, so you 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 got the crack and you realize there's a problem with your with your with your worldview now, if you're going to cancel your opponents, there's no way you can ever leave. You're just going to repair cracks and repair cracks and repair cracks. And every time somebody says something that reminds you of the guy you canceled, you're going to cancel that guy too and cancel that guy too uh -huh. until you've canceled everybody. And the Jacobins eventually started killing each other. And then their enemies realized, you know, let the Jacobins go off on their big egos and just kill each other. They all killed each other at the end. And that's why the French Revolution finally got rid of the Jacobins. And that's probably going to happen with a lot of woke culture today too. These, these different minorities that have grievances will finally go after each other. Here in Scandinavia, it's already happening because trans women and biological women can't get along. They're now fighting each other. Well, let them do it is all I said. Because <laughs> To me, I love both trans women and beautiful biological women and I don't see the problem at all. But they can't even talk to each other because they're so busy canceling each other that they go to war with each other. And this is the problem. So what I did, for example, with these two famous hashtags, Me Too and, and Black Lives Matter, was that as a lover, absolute lover of black culture, I was born in Africa myself, I have a black brother, you know. I have certain credibilities to maybe question this. And when it comes to Me Too, it's just like I said, listen, the problem here, it sounds all good, but it's way up there in the air, being high on itself, 
and its power, and it has no ground any longer. And basically what I did, I went on television in Sweden, debated me too, and said, yeah, but girls, can you just tell me where this is going to arrive? What is the end point of the struggle? When are you pleased? Or will you tear men apart, all men apart, before you're pleased with this? And they couldn't even answer it. And then I brought in an old woman who was a lawyer, and she told the girls to shut the fuck up. You girls have no idea we're talking about. Why haven't you seen me before you start talking? Because at least Alexander comes from a patriarchy among men. Where a young man knows he needs to go to an older, wiser man for advice before he opens his mouth. But young girls today think Instagram is their right to open their mouth about anything and have opinions about anything based on nothing but their own current feelings, which is the worst possible ground you could have for having any ideas of anything. And then they voice these opinions and get furious when anybody speaks against them and shout, cancel, cancel, cancel. Where have we seen this before in history? Jacobins. So uh, that's all I said. That, that's what I discussed. And then after I did that, I sat down for a year and did nothing but podcasts in Scandinavia with black guys and immigrant guys and explained to them why it was probably was a good idea to burn an occasional copy of the Quran now and then. And, you know, get respected as a Muslim in our culture. And then I had all of them on my side. And the only people still left fighting me three years later, essentially a few girls are pissed off because I exposed them for being cancel culture people. Hmm. Cancel culture is the only thing we should cancel. Cancel culture itself should be canceled. That's the real yeah. cancellation we need. Uh, how, does that, how does that happen? By awareness, enlightenment. This is why all these philosophical, philosophical struggles are political, they're spiritual, they're long-term struggles. You've got to go back to the guys all over again, explain, explain what you meant. And you're also learning that process. You sharpen your arguments and you deepen your arguments. And sometimes, with certain details at least, you'll also be wrong and you admit that. Or you uh -huh. just changed opinion because you preferred another opinion. You can have an aesthetic opinion about things too. That's okay. Yeah, yeah I... Couldn't agree more. And the idea that an awareness of what good dialogue is and what it isn't, when people can begin to recognize bad faith communication and bad faith actors, and once we can kind of have a shared vernacular around that and more awareness around that, I think the quality of dialogue just goes up as a as a natural function of that. Well, I, I, I'd like to keep the judges out for a while yet. So instead of judging the conversation according to the parameter that this must be a quality dialogue, I would say that the problem is the only thing we know from history is that free speech in itself has enormous value and the dialogue might look nastier than you want it to be and you probably have to accept that. Okay. I'd say because between between it looking nice and between it being free, I'd definitely pick free at any time of the day. Huh. Being an historian myself, absolutely go for freedom. I allow people to be huh. clumsy. And you know, if somebody behaves, behaves in a really clumsy manner, it's their own fault. If the audience stops listening because they babble too much or, or have a rude language, it's their problem. It's a rhetorical problem. It's not a substantial problem. Hmm. It's a rhetorical problem. And rhetorics, ah, you only true. learn by making mistakes, you know? That's so interesting because that's something that I've noticed in, in your speech, you. Um, you're one of the few philosophers that I've seen call people fucking idiots. <laughs> I think a Slavoj Žižek in me. 
he's not <laughs> yeah, language. Yeah. But he's a Slovenian and I'm a Scandinavian. We don't know how to behave in these salons, you know. It's just like I always said that I was shaped by the city of London in the way you could only be by not living there because I worked in the music industry and for 25 years I would go to London all the time because London was the marketplace, but I preferred to make the products in Scandinavia. Okay, London was so chic and so full of social coding and I got so fucking tired of it eventually. I decided never to live in London and I see the same thing going in philosophy circles these days. And that's why what comes out of London, philosophically speaking, is very superficial and has very little quality to it because it calls itself spirituality and it's already commercialized and it's packaged and it comes with the crystals or whatever. And it, 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 it's so bland that I prefer to be in an environment with brute language because apparently that's where the thinking goes on. Apparently. You know, I'm with the cynics in Greece who, who you know, the, the cynics... They used rude language and they dressed rudely and they walked naked and they fucked anything that moved. And they did so because they just pointed out that hypocrisy is a terrible place to start from pursuing truth. <laughs> the first thing you get rid of when you, get, when, it, when you pursue truth, which is the essence of philosophy, is to get rid, get rid of your, your obsession with behaviors and the obsession with social coding and things like that. So you need to get the hypocrisy out of the room. You need to make hypocrisy basically an impossibility to be able to think properly. Mm, that's so interesting. I, I want to hear more. And I also want to tie in this concept of antagony, this, this love for things that like disturb you, that, that disrupt you. Yeah. So the concept of antagony, it's not antagonism. We should point that out, although they're related. The same, the same origin, antagonia, which is a Greek word. Um, the concept of antagonism was actually developed when I worked with guys who develop... Um, Algorithms, for example, for Google. So these are guys who probably work at Google now. I worked with like 12, 15 years ago. And the question was that if we just removed the Google search page as we know it today and got the search page we really wanted, would the first thing we take off the page? The ads. Because the ads are obviously there for Google to make money from desperate losers who cannot get ahead in the algorithm, so they put ads on the page to make sure that we have to see them anyway. And we hate ads. Right? We hate you probably hate ads more than you ever hated slavery. The end, the end of history has got to say that. The abolition of advertising was probably a greater human achievement than the abolition of slavery. That's how much we really hate ads. Although it's hard to admit for, to us right now because we're dependent on them. But only Google gets paid for those ads, not us. Okay? The ad's gone. Then the next question is you then get an algorithm that explains to you if you type in a certain word, this is the most credible place on the internet to go to pursue this specific term further. So what the algorithm is measuring is not popularity. What the algorithm is measuring is awareness and credibility. So for example, if you type the best French restaurant in, uh, in Seattle, it's not the most popular restaurant that gets the top. It is actually the restaurant that gets the highest grades for its services towards its customers. Right? That's the point with the algorithm. The algorithm goes, it pushes through the popularity context. It's not measuring the quantity. It's going directly for the quality, which is what we're looking for. An algorithm should stay that way. Quality is essential to us. We use algorithms. Now, that's the first thing we do. But if we, if we do have enough space for the, on the page to have two columns on the page, then it turns out what people really love to have is a global and a local column. So, for example, I said the world's best French restaurant. Okay, it's somewhere in Menton, southern France. Here it is. Uh, the world's best French restaurant in Seattle. <laughs> the best local restaurant. And that comes in other column. And that's what people love. That's eventually how search pages are going to look, at least when we start paying for them ourselves. 
But this becomes an eerie repetition of the same, including the repetition of you. So if the algorithm reflects your behavior because you've got a smartphone with you at all times, it will only be repetition of the same. So you will end up with the same French restaurant every time you go to a French restaurant because you live in Seattle. And that's not what you wanted. You wanted to have an interruption to your behavior. Yeah, it's probably still the best French restaurant in Seattle, and I love French cuisine. But you know what? Any other French restaurant would be nice right now because I just want something else, right? When you go to that stage, you go to a mode that we call antagony. So the principle of antagony has been developed directly in communication between developers, say computer scientists and philosophers, like antagony is now a really important principle. Because the antagony button is the only thing you want to have on the page that says that. Now when the algorithms are too eerily reminding me of myself and I'm just becoming a repetition of myself and I get I hate this. There's no base jumping any longer in this. Right? There's, no, there's no ecstatic involvement in anything here. What I then do is that I would press that button and do it. And of course, Spotify have done this with their algorithms, which is like, how about if we throw in every 10th song that is a surprise to you? Or at least it is something that other guys like who like your musical taste, but at least you've never heard it before. And it turns out people love it. Any 19-year-old immediately will go for that antagonist button if it's offered to them. And that's what you want from the search page. You want global and local, highest possible quality and credibility. And then to that, you want the antagonist. And then you've got the search page finished. You don't need anything else to develop. And then it turns out 10 years later that when you develop AI... AI is actively looking for antagony because AI can only develop itself if it gets an obstacle of some kind. So if, 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 AI, if the AI finds an obstacle and it has to figure out a way how to get around that obstacle, that's essentially what intelligence is. If everything was just served to you, you passively just consumed it, and it all looked perfect, you know, you never think. <laughs> if somebody threw an obstacle into that, say, whoa, what the fuck, what is this? This is a surprise here. I don't know what this is. Well, what would I think of this surprise here? Should I incorporate it? Should I try to throw it away? That's when you start thinking. So antagonism oh. is fundamental to the concept of intelligence itself. And there's almost a accusation there that the woke culture or the cancel culture as we're defining it is just unintelligible. It's it's unintelligent because the the antagony of the dialectic, other people's opinions, other ideas, things that disturb them, things that upset them, they try to rid the environment of that as opposed to using their intelligence to navigate it, to deal with it, to wrestle with it, to have it in tension and in dialogue. Yeah. They tried to kill the antagony the first thing they do when they say it without even reflecting on it. And it's an infantile reaction because in psychoanalysis, this is reminiscent of you being denied the tits as you were one year old and now you want the tit back and somebody's disturbing you that you're going to get the tit back. And he says, that's disturbance is how you interpret the integrity. Instead of saying that there's the tit over there, it's called mamella, which is your parents supporting you and the government supporting you and somebody paying your bills or whatever until you can do it yourself. And then the other side from the mamella is called the phallus. I'm not meaning literally penis here. I'm meaning that the father's body or the man's body represents the grown-up life because you're obviously not born by man. It's simply negation of woman. So because man is not woman, man automatically becomes the phallus. So you strive for the phallus. So you want to get away from the mamella towards the phallus. And childhood, when it's done correctly and you raise your child properly, 
they go back and forth between these. They go back to the comfort of the parents who took care of them, and then they adventurously go away from the parents and say, no, I can do it myself. I want to do it myself. Get away. I want to do it myself. Now, that's strength because one day the child will have to also rebel against the phallus, the phallus of the parents, to become its own grown-up person. The problem, though, is that if you then cheat this process and you say, no, you can have the tit the rest of your life. Oh, your mother is not breastfeeding any longer. Well, we're feeding you resources anyway, your entire childhood. And by the way, after you fed those resources, here's the welfare state and it's going to feed your resources. And by the way, we find grievances in the past among your ancestors. Oh God, we can milk somebody for money. You just put more and more money into your hands. So you obviously become an alcoholic or a drug addict or something else meaningless because you're never taking any risks and you're never working and you're not doing anything you could be proud of because you stay a child. So the problem is that where we should trace this hatred of the antagony when it appears is that people react instantly against the antagony. And in America, both sides of the fence are doing that right now. You react instantly. You hate the antagony. You want it gone. You want it canceled. You have to remind them that for their own sake, they're not only killing themselves, they're turning themselves into eternal children. Because absorbing the antagony, taking on that challenge, is exactly what you do when you skip your parents and you become a proper adult on your own accord. This is how deep this goes. And funny here, when we're sitting doing computer science, we discover antagony is what people should really need. And smart, clever 19-year-olds with self-confidence will jump to it. But then on the other hand, we're fostering these children to also sit at schools and learn that anything you don't like, you must demand that it be canceled. Don't let them talk. Don't let them speak. Don't let them even show their faces anywhere. Just to move them. Remove the enemy. Remove the enemy. And as soon as you say the enemy must be removed, you have gone totalitarian. And in this case, you've gone totalitarian and infantile at the same time, which is disastrous. So I'm, I'm just the old grumpy guy who speaks up against these things when I see them. And all I'm saying to the kids is that, hey, wait a second, have you thought of this? And it's always the same question I return to. Where is this grounded, the statement you just made? Where does it really come from? Does it really come from you wanting to be part of a better world? Then in what case is silencing the opponent's opinion going to help you do that? Are you really the expert on absolutely everything 90 years old? Do you really know everything? Is another person's opinion that unvaluable to you that you must kill him? Is that smart? Or does this really just come from insecurity and narcissism because you've lived in a world of social media where your parents were removed and everybody else you compare yourself with is your own age and they're as lost as you are and all they can do is scream at the top of their lungs all having megaphones without anybody listening any longer. And that's when I get 90 years of clever to go to sources like Hegel and to philosophy because they know to understand where they're at right now historically. I, I can only partly help them. I'm not even in their universe. I only see it from a distance. And I can only imagine what a nightmare must be like to not be able to find truth anywhere except your own feelings. And that's not much of a truth to hang on to because they change. And that's why yeah. the antagonism principle is so fundamental to us in philosophy today because it's moved from computer science to the world of philosophy. It's a fundamental principle that actually where you can defend free speech in the most mature way possible. That simple principle. And you know that the kids love it when they get it. You know it's a, it's a deep biological instinct to just put, yeah, I want to be surprised. 
I don't want to be a repetition of myself. I want to be surprised. I could be somebody else tomorrow than, I, than the person I am today. Just for change itself. Yeah. And the, you know, just like having grown up in at least paralleling this culture, it's a, it has been a, it's been praising um, activism. Like that act, like that being an activist is like the highest order thing that you can be. So it really doesn't, it doesn't matter if you know what the fuck you're talking about. And it doesn't matter if it's grounded in reality or in justice at all. As long as you just take up arms. And the more violently or the more fervently you can do that, then you get this social credibility, right? And it is a, it is a thing that is really... For me, it's quite obvious when you notice it because the quality of dialogue with those um, with people who have taken up arms as a way to fit in is very low. The quality for of them to be able to articulate their ideas and the direction of their ideas, and not just the plights that they're talking about, right? Like the the plight is the negation, right? That they saw that they said, oh, like something's fucked up. And it's because black people were slaves and they came into this country and they, they can quickly articulate the plight, but the direction or the future or the, the, and, and the quality of the dialogue that underlies that exchange is just incredibly thin. It's very obvious to, to notice. Yeah, and please note what they cancel at the other side, not just the opponents voicing their opinions. They also cancel what irritates them and, and what, what is the real crack in their fantasy. So, for example, during Black Lives Matter, I just took to Nigerian immigrants in America. It turns out Nigerian immigrants in America didn't want to be part of Black Lives Matter. They usually don't live in Afro-American neighborhoods to begin with because they're ambitious. <laughs> they arrive in America, they work hard, they drive the cab, they go to church, they live in Texas, they're Republicans, every one of them. And then Nigerian immigrants send their kids off to Stanford and Harvard. Now, none of the two sides wanted blacks to look successful. And certainly not blacks that came to America now and within a generation were way more successful than the people who walked around in the streets all day long and actually degraded themselves by saying, we're losers and we've got to be losers forever. We need compensation for it. So they were removed from the discourse. It was so ironic that even one of the founders of Black Lives Matter turns out to be a Nigerian lesbian woman. It's like an American could not even come up with Black Lives Matter itself. <laughs> at least I, I owe it to her that I, she's a powerful Nigerian lesbian woman, you know. And, and at least she played a game with the Americans in a way that if she claimed afterwards that was a work of art, I would, I would say, yeah, that was a work of art. Like, like almost you knew that Nigerians would not be even allowed to voice their opinion when that happened because it disturbed the fantasy that blacks are inferior to whites, which is ridiculous nonsense. We are all Africans and we will have Africans all over the place because a hundred years from now, Africa will again be the center of the world because they still breed and none of us do. You know, it's, I love the idea that Africa is the beginning and Africa is the end of civilization. If you look at the civilization, the larger picture of things, that's exactly the story we have here. And this is just, watch out. What they start doing is that they, they remove not only the antagonies, they start removing and take fill over their own cracks. 
And that also involves silencing people and silencing the very people who don't fit it into your, say, white middle-class college fantasy. And this is the problem. We had it before in history. I just, I just, I was, I became an activist when it came to these things because I've studied digital for like the last thirty years. I'm, I'm an expert on it. I write philosophy books on it, and I'm really interested in the interface between man and machine when it comes to digital. And we're obviously making huge, huge experiments with humanity right now when it comes to this interface, with us sitting in front of laptops and smartphones and basically living our lives there, because we did none of this thirty years ago, and we don't know where it's gonna go. But at least we can remember from history in the past, dialectical again, looking back, that if Jacobins is what happened in France when the French learned how to read, write, and count, then Jacobins are very likely what we're going to have when people learn how to upload their own pictures and scream on Instagram. Huh. But it's going to take a lot of maturing to get through this process before we arrive at something far more civilized. And until then, it can get very bloody and messy. It's even very likely. Mm. Yeah, I've uh, had a, that's been a source of pain in me, that realization that I've seen that I'm, that I'm convinced that it is likely get worse before it gets better. But this is a tangent. I want to, I want to redirect us here back to the, this like dialogue. And I would like to reflect on the difference in rhetoric between you and a guy like Daniel Schmachtenberger. Schmachtenberger has a way of like, like he, almost everything he says, it seems to like come from this like very, it's like a very loving, very nuanced, very inclusive. Have you noticed this? Yeah. He's an old friend. And, we know and each other really well. Yeah. He's, an, he's an amazing person. He's he's one of my, my greatest intellectual influences of all time. But, um, I, my propensity actually, like the, my personality is very slanted towards the, the, the Bardian dialogue. I'm, I, I, I like to be pretty brash. I like to, I, you know, like the, the idea that people's ideas are stupid and they fucking suck at articulating them is kind of how I would naturally, <laughs> that's how I would naturally, uh, kind of come to the conclusion and, and, uh, Schmachtenberg has been a big influence on me and, uh, you know, Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication, all of these different kind of things to a little bit like it's almost the way I kind of think about it in myself is that I have to soften a bit so that it actually is received. Yeah, you, know, um, you can spend a lot of time on rhetorics, right? I, I worked in the music industry. You can spend a lot of time mixing the same record over and over again until you think it's perfect. Number uh, one, when you reach that perfection, you probably killed it. So don't overdo uh, the rhetorics, right? At, at the yeah. end of the day, we are now so used to communication that the first thing we look for is authenticity. And I know uh -huh. the word has been used intensely, but we're on the, we're on the beginning understanding what authenticity is because that's what we take off the makeup for example we do podcasts this is not television because the first thing that happens if you show your words and you show your red face or whatever it's just more credible because we've seen so many made up faces by now faking it that we don't want television ever again television is dead and over uh -huh. it ended up with a with an endless ongoing reality tv freak show the end of television is really donald trump 
Donald Trump yeah. is nothing but a TV show. You know, he spent four years in the White House with a bitch called Nancy Pelosi as the evil, evil bitch or something like that, witch or whatever. You know, it's just like a standard infantile TV show. That's what Donald, and probably it's <laughs> going to be another four years because television still happens to be around with some people. But for me, Donald Trump is standard television. I, I wrote about this with John Sudeikis 22 years ago in the book called The Netocrat Side. Mm-hmm. America will very soon have a reality TV show star as its president because th- those are going to be the only celebrities left because nobody else wants to be a celebrity any longer and the celebrities are the ones you choose as presidents then there's no alternative to it so but that's also the end of a paradigm we might not even need politicians in the future but i'd say that the important thing here is to stress is that you, you can go into the rhetorics deeply but while schmachtenberg and i sort of nurture differences in our characteristics personalities and the way we approach people and how we respect each other and tell each other that is that he reaches a certain audience and i probably reach another one yeah, totally. And if, if, if you're really sort of sincere about it, Schmachtenberger might be the world's best futurologist today. And I do uh-huh. futurology too. So we're colleagues, right? In a way, I might even be the Schmachtenberger of Europe, to be honest about it. And he's the Alexander Bard of America in the sense. But I also do philosophy. I'm also older than Daniel, and I've also gone into the philosophical world because I realized if I don't have the tools and the concepts I need to try to describe the future, I have to invent them. And the second you start inventing concepts, you become a philosopher. Philosophy is the invention of new concepts to understand the world better. New words, like antagonism, for example. Uh-huh. And I produce these new terms and that's my philosopher. And Daniel uses many of my own concepts. He's, he's very generous with credits and everything. He is gradually probably becoming a philosopher. But when he becomes a philosopher, you're probably also going to see a much tougher Daniel Schmachtenberger step out of it because that it's what's required of philosophy. You have to remember that a philosophy master will always yell at you and say, you fucking idiot. And then when you finally <laughs> get it and turn around three days later, he got to go and say, you're my favorite student. I love you to bits. I'll do anything for you. I'll kiss your feet. What do you need? Like, like you're a sociopath almost because you change the switch between these two positions. But because the world of philosophy requires the utmost of your creativity, it is the ultimate intellectual exercise. If anybody stands behind you and sees a bigger picture of the world than you do as philosopher, then he's the philosopher and you're not. That's philosophy. And, and that's what I've been striving for for years to get that position. And that's probably also why my language in that process has been more impatient. But uh, yes. I get away with it. You know. Get, <laughs> you do. I do get away with it. And I, I, I don't pretend to be down as much. I'm perfectly happy if he's 10 times more popular yeah. than I am. And if he reaches a mass audience that I will never reach, I'm perfectly happy with that. You know, I'm perfectly happy with that. Mm. I, what I hear is, is so radically encouraging for me. I, I, like, I feel courageous hearing that. That it really is like the... the 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 authenticity that just like wells up in me naturally like the things that i'm passionate about the ideas that i have and like letting myself go forward with my ideas and like speak them and 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 harden them and sharpen them by hitting them on other hard sharp objects and and letting myself be wrong and see it and grow and move and iterate this is uh, it's a very encouraging message and i i feel like that message is such an antidote for the thing that we've been talking about this 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 uh cancel culture the the encouragement to like 
have cringeworthy things that you look back on and iterate and you were wrong and you can admit it and it's okay. And you can like go forward. I feel like that encouragement that I just got from you is that's such an antidote for the cancel culture at large. Yeah, but, you know, where did we secularize the most in Western culture? Probably then California and Scandinavia. And what is woke culture? Well, you're woke. You're apparently woke all of a sudden, right? You're saved. That's just Pentecostal Christianity. <laughs> to be honest about it. It's like walking into ch- baptism church and they say, yeah, we're, we're, all of humanity is going to be saved. You know that you must be saved. If you're not saved, you're a sinner. So we go after the sinners, but those who are saved can stay inside here. So we have an inside full of saved people and an outside full of unsaved people who, who are sinners, right? And woke culture is exactly the same thing. If you're not, if you're not woke, you cannot be part of us. You cannot understand us. And therefore, we must go after you and cancel you the way you would cancel sinners in the past. It is, it is this enormous lack of a simple moralistic religion that turns some people to the in and other people to the out. And then, of course, what happened, this all started in the late 1970s, it started building in the 1980s, even in the world of philosophy and political science, the excuse of world culture already existed in the mid-1980s. It, it, it was middle-class people who wrote. Literally, they were disappointed working-class people for not starting a revolution. Laclos, Mouffe, 1980s, Marcuse before that. They wrote that they were disappointed. So they, the middle class, would then know better than the working class. And therefore, they threw Karl Marx out the door and got Jean-Jacques Rousseau in. And that's exactly what they look like Jacobins today. So this happened in the mid-1980s. And then it just grew and grew and grew. And then they hijacked beautiful things like classical feminism and turned it into radical feminism, which is completely distorted. They hijacked a beautiful movement called the LGBT movement. And it went from being political to being some kind of cultural fight against old people. <laughs> really weird. It became LGBTQ plus whatever. It's just like, LGBT, what was wrong with that? You, they still treat gay people like shit in Iran and Uganda. That's where the LGBT struggle should be today. No, it's all up the ass of some people in America and Sweden who are so full of themselves, they need to do LGBTQ plus and cancel non-LGBT people. <laughs> it's, just, it's absurd. And all of this started in the 1980s and then blew up with the internet because all of these people got their accounts on the internet. And why it got so aggressive and bitter was these weren't the winners online. The winners online that had huge followings of millions of people were people like you. <laughs> they people like you gave people a positive message. Like, I'm base jumping. Do you want to base jump? Do you know what it's like? Here's the story. And now you can pick up your base jump and quit. Maybe you want my little brand on it as well. Why not? And off you go. You know, those are the guys who became the winners online. But the world was full of bitter people who had become failures on the internet and had only 70 followers. And they were perfect recruitment material for the woke moment when it started taking off. And what they then did was that there were all these minorities who were betrayed and hated and now they were revengeful, okay? So they needed something to unify them. And then guys like Judith Butler came along. She probably was well-meaning in the beginning. It all went terribly wrong. When Judith Butler declared that the white heterosexual man is the guy we all hate. Well, he happens to be working class. (laughs) And the white heterosexual man is, of course, today the Trump voter. And how does the Trump voter behave? Exactly like the woke people. The same misery. No antagony. Hate the cracks in my fantasy. 
if, if the cracks appear, my fantasy doesn't hold true any longer. I repair the cracks as quickly as I can with whatever I can come up with. And I have a conspiracy theory ready for it so I can keep my fantasy that this is how the world operates. And, and, and I've been betrayed and I've been attacked. So now I'm the victim. And then you get a culture where you got victim going after victim, going after victim on all sides. And there are no heroes left. You know what the great hope is? Guys like you, because you were the winners online, you're just sitting on the sides, declaring your heroism, teaching other guys to be heroes. This is how you do it. This is what it feels like to be a hero. This is what it feels like jumping off a cliff and thinking you're going to die, although you're going to live, and you'll live more than ever. That's heroism. But that's the other side of the coin that eventually will win, because people will get so sick and tired of the people who turn themselves into victims that we're not going to follow them at all eventually. And then they're going to go after each other out of desperation and probably try to extract tax money as compensation, whatever they do, as if that would change anything. Whereas those who are authentically heroic will be the winners of the Internet Age. Who else would you follow? You don't follow victims. You don't care. You've heard their story now. No, you want to hear the Nigerian story coming out of Africa today. You want to hear the hero story. That's the one you want to hear. Yeah, it's so interesting. And and there's... I just so... I, I just... When you say that, I feel the nuance that's actually... That's not saying that to look back on the plights... And to like bring it into dialogue and to like look forward as to like what we might do about the shit that was fucked up in the past is a perfectly and absolutely necessary, like uh, virtuous thing to do. Right. Yes. So I'd love to hear you like almost like, like stand up for that thing that it's not actually the act of like looking at the victim or like looking where things were unjust. And like bringing that into integration in the society, right? Yeah. That's not the, the problem. It no, is the, no, it the, is the, the, pro- the culture is, around yeah. it. It's the type of dialogue. So a guy who's held to be really tough here, and sometimes he was right. He was a Marxist with Malcolm X. And one of the most famous quotes he's ascribed to is, is that there's this white woman who, who is a, one of these white people who wanted to be woke probably. who came up to him and told him, so what can I do as a white woman to support the black struggle? And he looked at her and said, nothing. Now, there's a certain truth to that. Because it wasn't her struggle. And she had no right to kidnap the struggle until somebody else invited her. Because it wasn't her position that allowed her to choose if she could be part of a struggle or not. So there was a point to him saying the nothing. But today, the radical answer would be that Malcolm X would tell her, you know what, turn around, I'll fuck you in the ass, and I'll fuck you in the pussy, then we have brown babies. Because at the end of the day, the integration must happen, and you must have a plan towards the integration. This is why a large part of my philosophical work is called exodology. Exodology means that we are here now, and at least some of us are going to go there in the future. And to go there in the future, we have to define where we're going. We have to have a very clear idea where we're going. An exodus to a certain point, usually a point called God or something. And we have to figure out how we're going to get from there to there, which is the Exodus itself. And the point with the Exodus is not to geographically leave Egypt and move to the Promised Land, although most of the time in history, it's literally been people leaving and migrating to somewhere else. And people are better when they do that, when they sit still. 
The four most interesting populations on the planet today are Chinese people in exile, Indian people in exile, Persian people in exile, and Nigerian people in exile. Because they're total overachievers wherever they go. So something beautiful and fantastic comes out of people when they get off their fat ass and leave. Not bitterly leaving. They say, if you want to stay in Nigeria, you can stay in Nigeria. But I'm going there. And I'm going to be Nigerian in Britain or Nigerian in America or whatever. Or Nigerian in Canada. And I'm going to be successful in Nigeria there. And I will send you money home if you have a tough time in Nigeria. But I'm leaving. I'm conducting my exodus. And you can also think of the exodus as paradigms or periods of history. The question is here, how do we make the exodus out of the capitalist industrial age we've lived in with this individualism towards the new informationalist internet age that it's been, we've been thrown into at the moment? How do we figure out how we become winners in digital and how do we foster our children to be winners in digital? That is the most adamant question today. And, and if you're on the move already, you're probably much more likely to pick up and, and, and understand that question because you're moving already. And if you're already on the move, it's easier than somebody sits still, gets a laptop, and suddenly the laptop challenges them. This is precisely why it's not people who are on the move. It's not the migrants who become woke. It's middle-class people who are stuck somewhere and can't get out of it and be taught at school that they should be self-obsessed. And they should be narcissistic and talk about themselves all the time. They're nothing but a personal sales pitch. They're walking around like a CV all the time. And now they discover that if they put political activism onto the CV, they can finally become the white woman who came to Malcolm X. And actually, they want to get rid of Malcolm X so they can become the struggle themselves. And then they call it woke culture. All it is, is a repetition of the same old baptism of the 19th century and the same sense that I want to be superior to other people. And if my group, the in-group, is superior to the outside group, the inferiors, then I am saved and they are sinners and that's all there's to it it's not more profound than okay. that and you just you just referenced the exodus from this late stage capitalism exodus from capitalism towards the new thing and i would love to hear just like you riff on that just a little bit what's the new thing the new thing started with a book called The Netocrats that came out 22 years ago. And I've been pursuing this over five books. I'm writing my sixth and my seventh book at the moment. So this is my philosophy. My philosophy is paradigmatic. My philosophy is that all values that human beings have are bound to the paradigm. They're bound to the historical period to live in. Some of these values have a more timeless quality to them, like loving your family, raising kids, loving your kids. Uh, you know, financing yourself, get, go to work, you know, things like that are tend to be quite timeless. There are also time-specific values. For example, how do you become successful in the online world and how do you become the king of the laptop, you know? The mix of these time-specific and timeless values are the real values of a paradigm. And the trick is once you figure this out, you realize that most of the values we're being taught today are values from an old paradigm that is dying. And all those values foster us to do is to repeat the mistakes of the past and to stay within a pattern that was already dead. And that's all the old institutions, like old industry, advertising, academia, politics, they're all doomed. And it's all, it's, it's, it's the worst possible people who are entering those spheres now because anybody who's smart does things like what we do right now. They go online, they publish online. I have a whole generation now of philosophers who will never become, no, of philosophers will never become professors in academia. They're gonna be ed tech content providers which is genius. 
Okay, it's got to be tough because to be pioneers. But just like anybody goes into tech these days, you're a pioneer when you're early on the curve. But you're going to be the billionaire at the end of the curve if you pursue that. And all I'm teaching them, I've been teaching them for years, that here's the new paradigm. Digitalization will happen everywhere. It will blow itself as a huge force through all of society, just like capitalism did before it. And to get used to it and understand it is to be a winner. So I'm basically giving anybody who wants to listen anywhere in the world, here's the general advice for the paradigm we're entering. Here's how you become a winner within that paradigm. That's what I've been doing for the last 22 years. And to go back to the exodology, what then happens is that narratives change. And that's when it gets brilliant because narratives are always the shortcut for people to understand complexity. And this is what I work with, but maybe Don Schmachtenberger and I go different ways because he is a real futurologist. He's very much based on the facts and stays with those. I'm much more interested in what's called narratology. I'm much more interested in how do you then construct a narrative? How do you create, create the films and the theater and the TV series and everything that tells people about this new world they're entering so they can understand that from a sort of artistic perspective? Not propaganda, from an artistic perspective that just tries out different things to do it. So... For example, my Nigerian philosopher friends today, who are very tired of American discourse, they're playing around with the idea that maybe we should, maybe we should at least try the alternative that actually was the blacks who were smart and got onto the ships and got over to America to one day rule the world from America. Just try that idea for a while. It sounds cynical at first, doesn't it? But it's not covering up what actually happened. It doesn't deny historical facts. It's just playing around with the idea. And if you play around with that idea, then the long term, over say 2,000 years, it is actually very, very likely that America has become a black-dominated couple of continents and that those guys will rule the world. Just like anybody else has come to America and worked hard, has been globally successful because of it. Right now, the Indians are taking over Silicon Valley. The Nigerians realize that that's perfectly feasible for them too. There might be some Bangladeshis in between, but after the Bangladeshis, probably Nigerians are next. They're going to take over all the leading corporations in America, and they're going to become celebrities, and maybe even politicians, God knows what. But they, the Nigerians are, because of the Indians and the Chinese before them, realize you don't have to be European to be successful in America. Here are the guys who proved it. No, then that could be me. And that's all people need. All people need is a role model. A role model is successful. Like you, be the base jumping. And once you got the role model who's successful and can teach you how to do it, they mimic. And that's what human beings are really, really good at. So if you get them out of the lack of self-confidence that lies in the self-obsession, in the sort of negative narcissism that is obsessed with getting back to the tit, but if you redirect the kids away from that and say, no, no, you can take a challenge. Come on. You can take that that guy looks different than you. You can take that he says things you're uncomfortable with. You, you can handle that. Come on. You know, and go towards a more phallic direction, which go towards your own adulthood. Now, if you can get the kids to do that, the first thing they do then is start mimicking the right people. They don't mimic themselves any longer when they're the most regretful. They start mimicking other people who are their icons, their idols, their role models, so they can be something similar to them when they grow up. And that is when children are at their most beautiful. And we just need to get the kids around to that, to that position where they start seeing themselves differently in the future than just being victims. Yeah. Because that's pathetic. Yeah, much more resilient. Absolutely. Resilience is a great word for that. Much more resilient. And then the first question is to ask, have you really radically exotological? You ask yourself, where are my genes going to be in 2,000 years? Okay, yeah. make it at least 200 years. 
Where's my family and our relatives going to be then? They suddenly you start making the right decisions because of it. You don't, I love you don't go back to your past over and over and over again. You push the antagonist button that opens up a future for you, which is radically different from anything experienced in the past. And you can become heroic. As we, as we get close to an hour here, I, I want to use this. This I, I I've heard you mention on a couple of occasions this new chosen family, and I would love to hear your ideas on the new chosen family and relationships. There is a just a huge surge of we can call it polyamory or people call it ethical non-monogamy, where it's like there's some kind of shakeup happening right now in the realm of intimate relationships. And there is a lot of shadow in it. There's a lot of unknowns in it. And I would just love to hear your curmudgeon old man take on the this new thing and the what's the what's the likely shadow in it? What is the benefit in it? And how do you encourage people to uh, experiment and iterate with their relationships as we move from the old paradigm to the new? This is a perfect example of a dialectical process. So the nuclear family, if, if you check the history of family, of the word itself, is one of the most popular words. It exists in every Indo-European language except Icelandic or something like that. But family exists everywhere. So it's familia in Sanskrit even. So it's apparently a very, very important word. So let's save the word. Let's decide we're going to save the word. Then, again, we go historically back and check out where does it come from. It turns out that family in most cultures is about 40 people. And those are the 40 people you trust. And in whose arms, it's the mamela again, in whose arms you are protected and provided for. So you can be a strong contributor and protector of the family when you get older. Um... That's how family is perceived as a concept in almost any culture. Now, the question then is that where did this idea of the nuclear family come from? And it's very funny. The nuclear family was invented by a Prussian bureaucrat in the 1810s after the Napoleonic Wars. It just turned out that this guy was like, he was, he was an absolute, very logical person, like almost autistic. Like he, he, he was great with numbers. He had no understanding of human emotions. So he just sat there as one of those bureaucrats do and just counted the numbers. And then he discovered a certain pattern in Prussia that if you, if you imploded the villages of Prussia, if you, if you just removed the villages of Prussia and then forced the people in the villages to live two by two in different farms, separated from one another, they became more productive. Okay, because they probably became more responsible for the very earth that they put their plants on and, you know, the animals they bred or whatever. Yeah, that's probably true. That's what people thought for at least 150 years. I would say the reason why it became productive, it became people, people became terribly unhappy. Sometimes we claim capitalism, we blame things on capitalism we shouldn't blame on capitalism. We just blame them on stupid bureaucrats or Confucian Lutheran or something like that because this was the case here. So the Prussian bureaucrat invented the nuclear family said, no, it must be a husband and a wife and nobody else. And they will then breed children and live on their own in their house and take care of their children. 
And it worked okay as long as they were farmers because the wife took care of the house. That was her domain, her realm, the inner realm. And he took care of the, out, you know, the outer sides of the farm. And, you know, and he was then the, the farmer. So he was the outer realm masculinity. And then probably they had some weird guys, traders they could trade with so they can have whatever they wanted at the farm to survive. And then hopefully later they started sending the kids to school some 40 or 50 years later. And then the kids left the farm and moved into a town and got a job at a factory. And of course, we mimic each other, so the kids took the nuclear family ideal with them from the countrysides of Europe into the towns and across the Atlantic over to America. And we have then lived as if the nuclear family was this eternal idea that all cultures subscribe to, whereas the rest of the world has tried to go, no, we don't buy into that. We don't have Indian nuclear families. We don't have Arab nuclear families. But since you're the top guys now, you make the most money and apparently you rule the world and you're not listening to anybody else. Have your nuclear family then. Okay, and we did. And then from the 1960s onwards, the nuclear family exploded and imploded. It's just like divorce rates went up and up and up. And every time the divorce rate went up, people wanted to cover over the crack in the fantasy of the nuclear family being there eternally. And they tried to fix the cracks and fix the cracks and fix the cracks and fix it. And some people, maybe somewhere like in the 1980s, discovered that people who weren't welcome to the nuclear family fantasy, like gay people, tried something different that seemed to work better. And suddenly two gay guys and two lesbians had children together because a family of four turned out to be stronger than a family of two. And gradually, these very self-obsessed heterosexual couples believing in the romanticism of him and her meeting and loving each other forever, um, started realizing that, yeah, you fall in love and it lasts for a few weeks and then it's probably over and done with and then it doesn't last. So if you have four divorces during your lifetime, you would have had 40, to be honest about it, because you can't keep a relationship together. You have no idea how you're going to make that work. So this is why the dialectical process arrived at the point that at least straight people looking at gay people or other people for inspiration. Personally, same girlfriend for 24 years. She lives with women. I live with men. We never argue. We have the perfect heterosexual relationship if you want one. We don't even call it heterosexual. We call it divine relationship these days because apparently everybody else has a problem that we don't have. It just turns out that monks and nuns have lived like this forever. I'm the ambassador among men for her and she's the ambassadress for me among women. And it works. And I'm happy. My family is way, way larger than two people, and certainly larger than two adults and some children. I have a concept of family, the chosen family, where I would certainly say, yeah, I'm, I'm close to 40 people in my family. Some kids included too, certainly, and they're well taken care of. And this concept of the chosen family is that we chose each other, and we chose each other for life. And we don't have to find new partners and then throw out the old partner to get the new partner in, or any of those nuclear family models that are so ridiculous, right? You don't need them. Mm. Mm. So we're seeing the end of a Prussian bureaucratic era for romanticism and lovemaking. <laughs> I think it's really healthy. It's a tough ride ahead of us. And you talked about the shadows involved. The shadows are probably not what people think they are. They think the shadows are hedonism, like, you know, you just want to sleep around and that's why you want to go into this. I don't think yeah. that that's the case at all. I think it's actually it's a serious attempt at making marriages last longer by including more people in them and that i definitely applaud and and uh, i don't i think this movement is so aware of its potential shadows that i would actually say in this case i don't even want to talk about the shadows 
I think this is so encouraging to see this move towards polymerosity because it's finally moved towards reality. The reality of sexuality, the reality of masculinity, the reality of femininity, and the way I want to see it is that men and women are equal, but they're so radically different, and that's what I enjoy the most. I love that. I love that it's a, as you put it, it's a move towards reality. Exactly. And there's, there are harsh realities, right? There's harsh realities. The, the Prussian nuclear family has protected us from the insecurity that our person might like someone else too. It was also easy to tax. It was also easy to tax and that was, that's why it was popular. Remember that the models that we hang around to the most are actually the models we never wanted in the first place. The models that were forced on us because somebody else who wants to use us wanted to have those models. It was easy to tax, and now it's done. I like that. That's also very encouraging. There is a, there is a move that's happening towards, and, and I like that you put that the common shadow, the accusation of the shadow is hedonism, that everyone just wants to sleep around. Well, why not? <laughs> why be boring? Why should boring people decide things for you? You know, it's probably because I'm shamanoid and you're probably like me here. We haven't gone into private matters, you and I, but sleeping around is just natural for a shamanoid, but it's also natural for our partners. I only sleep with shamanic girls. <laughs> it's like Victor and Joe and the guys live with. They're just like, oh God, we can't sleep with any other girls but the shamanic ones because the other girls are just too boring. They're just too limited. They're just too uptight. They're too much of princesses. and uh, they, they, they don't go straight to their female sexuality. Why, why sleep with a new woman who doesn't have access to her sexuality? When it's so fantastic, right? So, yes, that's not though for everyone. And if there's one little shadow you must remember here, is that if you go into the tantric realm where we do experiment socially and where a lot of the polyamorosity is going on, that's not necessarily for everybody. If I meet a man and a woman who say, we fell in love, we're monogamous, we're going to stay together, raise a family together, congratulations. I have no problems with that whatsoever. But don't try to make yourself again into a universal model. Just allow yourself to be an alternative in others. And if you succeed, tell people why you succeeded. Because they need that story if they have your fantasy. What's cracked is not monogamy. What cracked is not romantic love. What cracked was the idea that the nuclear family was a universal ideal that everybody must copy. That was a terrible mistake. A very costly one. And we need to get out of that loop and just realize that here's an example of diversity we need. A diversity of families. Wow, that's so beautiful. And I think that you just articulated it so well that the main issue is not any of the ideas themselves it's that any of them should be monocropped yeah we can afford that now historically we don't need a model because we don't go to the same factories we don't do the same menial work every day we're no longer slaves we all allow to be different for one another and then we certainly need different forms of family because family is the most important thing to human beings. I am very much an anti-individualist because I would be an individualist if my audience were polar bears. But they're humans. I like Schmachterberg, you know, Tristan Harris, shared friend of ours, you know, we're concerned with it. Why isn't technology humane? Tristan Harris is a fantastic question. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course it should be humane, except that it was powers that weren't humane that constructed technologies to their advantage. Okay, next step then dialectically is to create more humane technologies, and probably people would then prefer them because they're more humane. So it's the same thing here with, with, with concepts like family, is that individualism was never humane. Believing in yourself at the expense of others was just competitive, and often rivalrous, which is even worse. So the true word here is tribopoiesis. Tribopoiesis is a beautiful Greek word that we use in our philosophy. Tribopoiesis means that everything of value comes out of the collective and returns to the collective. Anything out of value we human beings create is always co-created. They were never individual innovators of anything. Everything came out of a long series of different things and experiments and changes that went on for a long time. And suddenly there was something that looked like a smartphone. But if you look at the history of the smartphone, it's all kinds of things. And even 10 years before the smartphone, everybody knew it was just a matter of time before somebody had merged a laptop with a mobile phone. The question was, who would do it in such a way that it would then mesmerize the world? And it was Apple. But everybody knew that innovation was going to happen. Because you now understand how innovations do happen. We can even start predicting them which, of course, Schmachtenberg and I try to do. And then when you see the world that way, you see a tribopoetical world. The tribopoetical world is that everything starts when it returns to tribe. Everything that happens that it values us has been made by several people together. This is why I love words like family, clan, and tribe. Because everything of value that human beings ever do come out of tribal context. As they do today. We are starting our own digital tribe right here, right now, because... Guys in Europe will now start following you, and probably some guys in America will start following me. That's exactly what tribal is. This is a tribal poetic conversation. It's not owned by you or me. And this seems to be at the heart of the old paradigm, the individualist paradigm, coming, changing, and coming back to a more integrated tribal and not a, not a regressive one, right? Like there's so much in America that people like praise the, the native Americans without really understanding their culture. And, and almost it's like a, the, the praise seems like a regression, but there's this, a tribal, there's a tribal integration that you seem to be pointing towards. Oh yeah, exactly. I really do. And Americans can be, They've so much inherited individualism as their own religion. They even changed all the religions of America into individualist interpretations of religion. So Christianity was never individualist. It became individualist with baptism. Um, and eventually you get the own American religions, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, the Mormons. Oh, totally individualist. So it's so tied to the American identity that it's almost like the American flag. Like, I'm an American, I'm an individualist. But in reality, then I see behavior, and behavior is always tribal. What I love the most about America is Burning Man. What is Burning Man? Burning Man is a collective communist experiment. <laughs> it's communism. <laughs> At least for eight days, it is communism. And this is America's at their best. Because they go there and build these amazing things, and nobody makes a penny out of building those things. They just do it as a shared collective artistic experience. And when did Burning Man, when was Burning Man born? It was born with counterculture in California meeting digital. 
Burning Man is the perfect example of the first mass spiritual practice that is built on the digital platform. It is digital spirituality in its pure form. And of course, now Burning Man has 250 spin-offs around the world. I'm involved in one called The Borderland in Scandinavia. It is magical. And sometimes we at The Borderland experiment even more than Burning Man does. We're certainly more naked people around than Burning Man does. You know, we're probably towards an 80% naked rate by now because we're Scandinavians. But it's just wonderful to compare Burning cultures in different parts of the world, how you both take the local culture, you take the topography, you locate yourself, and then you add on top of that some new universal values that come out of digital and being great listeners, but also being really able to act quickly. It's a duocratic culture. It, it cherishes the people who act and build shit, which is great. So that also means it's heroic. It's proto-heroic. You can have people comment on Burning Man sitting at laptops, but they never go to the event. And people have learned that. Oh, we got these woke people who go after us all the time about Burning Man not being racially inclusive or whatever. But they never show up, so we just disregard them. And I think that's exactly the thing you should do if you're heroic. If you can, if you can have your own event that gets all the attention, because it's the best event possible, and then all these other guys who are busy with the resentment are commenting on you, and you just decide to ignore them, you win. Huh. You become the role model for the next generation. You become what the kids look up to. You, bo you become what the kids want to become themselves. And they will start mimicking you and do their own versions of what you do. And they mimic you as if they would just repeat the same thing until they make a little, little mistake or, or something is slightly different. And that's when you turn around and become their father. That's when you turn around and look at the kid and say, listen, you just did something that I didn't do. And they looked at you and they're like, shocked. oh, I didn't mean to. That's brilliant though, because that's you. That's where you start. You start where you're not doing what I did. You stop when you are my antagony. That's where you become you. And that's not individualism. That is just describing the child in relation to the father, in relation to the community, in relation to tribal, being his or her own individual inside the community. And that's a strong human being. This is what we try to work towards. And that's why I'm involved in Burner culture. I know the, there's a lot of relevant criticism of Burner culture, but I don't take it very seriously because right now, my hope in America is precisely when Americans, without even knowing about it, are becoming communists. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> the irony. <laughs> I love it. It's, I love it. I love it's it. so nice to talk. It's, it's so nice to talk to you. I feel like, I, I feel very encouraged by our conversation and your message is very encouraging in general. And um, I think that you have so much insight into the 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 cracks of the current model and um i appreciate your your perspective on where we're going and what is good it's been amazing talking to you thank you so much for having me it's been a 10 pleasure. out of 10 would totally recommend can't wait to do it again <laughs> thank you so much okay you guys i hope you enjoyed that i'm so stoked that alex was here and he's coming back he is coming back. We're going to do this again. I really super appreciate this guy. He's like a, he's like my kind of elder right now. Like I just like had that feeling when I was talking to him, I was like, oh wow, like a wise older philosopher than me. I could really use this in my life right now. And I was very encouraged by his words and his message and just how he is and how he lives and how he speaks. So, um, stay tuned for more Alexander Bard. And I just want to tell you right now, guys, I've got John Verveke just booked a 
just booked a uh, slot on the podcast for October, which, oh God, I'm so stoked about. Zach Stein. Oh man. Can you believe it? Greg Enriquez. These are like the all-stars of this show of all time. And uh, I'm getting this thing lit back up. Thank you so much. Those of you who have been listening for so long and who support me on Patreon and um, have uh, survived this like kind of slow time as I've, I've had some like waning motivation to be podcasting and to be creating and um, the motivation is coming back. I've got a cool new project with Neurohacker Collective that is a company founded by Daniel Schmachtenberger, his brother James, and Jordan Hall, as you know, some of my favorite philosophers on the planet. So uh, we've got a podcast series coming out together. It's going to be so rad with those guys that I mentioned, Enriquez and Stein and John Verveke. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you're doing so awesome. Drop me a line. Um, would love to hear from you guys. Leave a review and a thingy do the internet thing that helps the show and and check me out on patreon thank you so much love you guys see you in the next show